today's scripture reading is Genesis 4, 17, and, uh, 17 to 26 and Genesis chapter 5. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and born Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod father Mehujuel, and Mehujuel father Methushuel, and Methushuel father Lamech. And the Lamech took two wives. The name of the one of one was Ida, and the name of the other was Zilia. Ida bore Zebel. He was the father of the who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play, who play the iron and pipe. Zilia also bore Tubalkain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalkain was, was Naima. Lamech was ha, said to his wife, Aida and Zilia, hear my voice. You wife of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created a man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them. Man, when they were created... When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of ha that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered in his 807 years, and he, he, others, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Henashash lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalil. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalil 840 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalil had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalil lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. He and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalil was were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Anak walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three hundred years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Anak were three hundred and sixty-five years. Anak walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived eight hundred and eighty-seven years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after Father Lamech seven hundred and eighty-two years and had other sons. Other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Out of the ground that Lord has cut, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hand. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Zephath. Thank you, Satish. I feel like he deserves a round of applause for getting through all those big names. Great job on that. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at the Bridge Church. Um, and the past couple of weeks, we've had some guest preachers. I don't know about you. I've really enjoyed getting to just sit and listen to God's word being taught from the other side um, and just been really encouraged by what these guest preachers had to say to us. Um, and today we're back in Genesis. Sorry, I don't have slides for today. But if you're taking notes, the title of today's sermon is the Tale of Two Cities. The Tale of Two Cities. And uh, we're going to just start with a recap of where we've been in Genesis so far, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Genesis. So at the start of Genesis, God creates everything. Everything that exists, God makes it. And as the crowning achievement of his creation, he makes humanity in his image. He places them in a garden and he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He's telling them basically to do things that if they obey him and if they follow in what he's telling them to do, it's going to lead to the development of cities because there's going to be lots of people and you're going to need places for these people to live and culture and technology is going to develop and you're going to have centers of that culture and technology. And so God's telling them, you're in a garden now, but I want you to make this garden into a garden city. I want it to be a place of perfect technology and advancement and community, and it's going to be great. And long before, long before humanity gets anywhere close to that, the man and the woman disobey the one command that God has given them. He said, out of all this garden I've given you, you can eat from any tree you want except one, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. When you eat from that tree, you'll die. And a snake came along and said, ah, you know, God's actually holding out on you. He knows if you eat from this tree, you'll actually become like him. He doesn't want that. He's kind of jealous and selfish. You should eat it so you can be like God. So they eat it. And of course, as soon as they eat it, chaos and pain and suffering and death enters the world. God comes down and he gives consequences to the man and the woman and the snake for their disobedience. And in this moment where humanity has rebelled against God and disobeys him and deserves all the consequences that they can get. 
God actually speaks a word of hope to them in the midst of the garden. Actually, he speaks this word of hope to the snake. He says to the snake that he is going to put enmity between the snake and the woman and between the snake's children and the woman's children. He says that he's going to, he's going to, humanity has turned away from him and allied, allied themselves with the snake, but rather than leaving them to that fate of destruction and death, he's going to make them enemies so that they're not going to be tied to the snake's fate, that they actually have a chance to defeat the snake. And he promises that one day the woman's going to have a child, an offspring, who's going to defeat the snake once and for all, who's going to crush him so that he cannot rise anymore. And as soon as this passage in Genesis 3 ends, the next passage starts with Eve having children. The offspring have arrived. The rescue plan seems to be beginning. But then out of the two children that she has, there's a good one and an evil one, and the evil one kills the good one. He's dead. And it seems like God's plans for this rescue have been completely thwarted. And that's where today's passage picks up. God has just given consequences to Cain, the, the man who murdered his brother, because of his actions. And God says that Cain is now cursed from the ground, that the ground won't grow things as easily for him as it used to, that Cain will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, that he's going to be homeless, constantly looking for a place that he's never going to be able to find, that he can call home. But as we see at the start of today's passage, Cain, rather than just saying, yes, I accept this fate, he decides to build a city for himself. He decides to, to build a place where he can have a home, where he can settle down. We see that finally God's good plan for humanity's development and growth of building cities, it's happening, but rather than happening in obedience to God, rather than happening as an act of worship to God, it's happening in rebellions of God. It's happening as an act of defiance against him. As we'll see just in a minute, cities are a place where people can be really mean to each other. And cities are a place where people can mistreat one another. I'm talking to the boys, not to Perla. I see what's happening here. And from this point on, the story of humanity becomes a tale of two cities. There's the city of man built in defiance against God. And there is the city of God, the, the one that he planned from the beginning for us to build. And this passage that we're looking at today, it tells us a lot about the nature of both of these cities. And it gives us a challenge and an invitation to live with our true home in God's city, not the city of man. And so what we're going to see today, the main idea is that the city of God is a city of rescue and hope. The city of God is a city of rescue and hope. And we're going to look at the city of man, the city of God, and the need for hope. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your plan for human good and prosperity and development. And God, we know as we sit here, just from our own experience, that we fall so short of that plan on a daily basis. But we pray that by looking at your word today and understanding more deeply who you are, that you would help us to see your plan, to love you because of your good plan, 
and to walk in obedience to you each day, seeking to live as citizens of your city. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is the city of man. Like I said, Cain, he initially builds his city in the aftermath of God giving him consequences and telling him that he is going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth because he's killed his brother. God says, you're going to be homeless. You're never going to have a place to settle down. And Cain says, oh yeah, watch me. He says, God, I'm not going to accept your consequences. I'm going to continue living life my own way. Based on the character of God that we see throughout the Bible, it seems like Cain had an opportunity to repent, to say, God, I was wrong. I shouldn't have killed my brother. I'm sorry, please forgive me. The Bible is full of stories of God forgiving and rescuing murderers. And yet Cain doesn't do that. Instead, he just continues on his path of seeking his own way. He continues doing what he wants rather than what God says. And he builds a city. And to be clear, this city probably looked nothing like what we think of when we think of a city. It it more likely had tents than like skyscrapers in it. But at the very least, it was a place of refuge. It was a place that when people were threatened, they could come together and have a place of safety. And it was a home base. So that wherever you ended up on earth, wherever you got scattered to, you could always have somewhere to point to and say, that's my real home. That's where I belong. Cain City, it's a a way of him trying to build stability and safety and home apart from God. And not only that, but it's also a way of Cain trying to make a name for himself. Did you notice when Cain named the city, what did he name it? He named it after his son, Enoch. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the story of Cain and Abel, we said the one thing Cain wanted more than anything else is to be lifted up. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted people when they thought of Cain to think he is such an amazing guy. He wanted people to look at him and be like, I wish I could be like Cain. And so when he builds the city, he names it after his son so that when people look at the city, they'll know Cain's family is great. Cain's family has done something important for us. Cain's family is the one that we want to be like. Cain builds the city to make a name for himself, to be a lasting legacy and monument for the greatness of him and his family. And as you look at all the things that Cain's trying to accomplish through this city, I think we have to admit the world hasn't really changed that much in all the time that's gone by since then. Cities are still a place people go to for safety. We we come to cities because there's a certain level of safety in the crowds. There's a reason that when minority groups go to a new area and settle, they settle in the city because cities are places with diversity of population where it's easier to blend in, where you don't stand out as much as in the country. Cities are a place of safety even today. Cities are still places that people look to as a home base in a world of constant change. Anytime I talk to expats in Hong Kong, every expat has somewhere that they consider home. Typically not Hong Kong. And even if they haven't lived in this place for 30 years, they can still point to somewhere and say, that's my home. And home is the place where you know, if I go back there, I'm gonna find people like me. I'm gonna find people who see the world that I, the way that I see it. And if, if something happens and maybe 
home changes. It gets filled with different types of people who aren't like me, who don't see the world the way that I do. We feel the need to establish a new home because the idea of being homeless terrifies us. We need a home base in the world and cities serve as our home base. I mean, I think that idea of cities being a place of home in a world of, of chaos is why cities are so often the center of social unrest in society as well, right? Because people with different definitions of home share that space in the city. And everyone wants to feel at home in the city, but sometimes me feeling at home in the city and you feeling at home in the city actually looks like the city being two totally different places. And so we fight with one another because each of us feels like it's our right to have this city be our home. When these competing stories come into conflict with each other, each side feels the need to assert themselves and their experience and their narrative so that the city can keep being home for them. That social unrest in any city, it's, it's not just a conflict of opinions. It's about who has the right to truly be at home there because cities are where we try to build our home. And cities are still a place that people go to try to make a name for themselves. I mean, if you weren't born in Hong Kong, what was it that brought you to Hong Kong? My guess is that it's either a better title at work or more money than you could make back home or opportunities to advance in your career that you couldn't get if you had stayed in your home. We come to the city to make a name for ourselves. We come to the city to get ahead so that everyone can know how great we are. That's what cities are for. That's what cities were for in Kane's day. That's what cities are for in our day. Why do people in cities give so much money to get their name put on buildings? Because the buildings are a lasting monument to our legacy. We literally have our name on them so future generations can remember how great we are. The city is a place to make a name for ourselves. And as in Cain's day, so often it's true today, cities, they're not just a place people go to make a name for themselves, but they're a place people go to make a name for themselves apart from God. That's how it is in the city of man. It's a place where we seek stability and safety. It's a place where we seek a sense of home. It's a place we go to make a name for ourselves. And so often it's a place we go to do all these things apart from God. And so as we look at Cain's city, what does God do to this rebellious city? The city that was started by a murderer as his way of trying to escape a murderer's fate? I mean, God should just destroy it, right? Just work against everything they try to accomplish, stop them from making any type of progress. That's what we might expect, but that's not actually what we find in this passage. Instead of destroying the city, God gives them blessing. Instead of stopping them from doing anything important, God actually allows them to do these great cultural and technological advancements. Look at chapter four, verses 20 to 22. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Cain's descendants, the ones who live in this rebellious city, they develop incredible techniques for raising animals, for playing music, for doing metalwork. God allows incredible blessings for the entire world to come out of Cain and his family. That's pretty incredible, right? Like you and I today 
owe a debt of gratitude to Cain's family because of the crafts that they developed in this rebellious city. God's grace on, on one level reaches even to this family that hates him and runs from him. God allows this rebellious family to accomplish things of lasting value that are a blessing to the entire world. Isn't God good? And I think that's something that's really important for us today, that God is incredibly gracious. And because he's incredibly gracious, he does things of lasting value and lasting good for the world, even through people who want nothing to do with him. And so if you, on a day-to-day basis, go to work in a company that wants nothing to do with God, that has no background in any type of faith, anything, that maybe even opposes God, guess what? God can still use you and your company and the work that you do there to do incredible good for the world and to bring lasting blessing to the world. The fact that your company has no basis in faith doesn't mean that God's forgotten about them and abandoned them and just left them to do horrible things. God does genuine good for the world, even through people who want nothing to do with him. I don't know about you, I'm encouraged by that. And yet, despite all the good things that happen in Cain City, in the city of man, it's a good that's divorced from God. And when development and advancement and technology happen, divorced from God, these really good advancements start to be used for evil. And if you don't believe that's the case, just listen to any of the conversations happening about AI right now. Right? Everyone's like, AI, amazing new technology. But then everyone's like, hold on, we got to slow this down because look at all the horrible things people can do with AI now that it's out there. Look at all the ways that this amazing technology that can supposedly transform the world can transform the world in horrible ways that we want nothing to do with. That's what happens when technological advancement is divorced and separated from God. And we see this happening in the city of Cain as well. There's a man named Lamech. If you count the family line from Adam, he's the seventh generation, which means he's a real person, but he symbolizes the the epitome of Cain's family. He is the ultimate example of what Cain's family is like. And when we look at Lamech, Genesis presents him as just being purely evil. The first introduction we get to Lamech is in verse 19, where we learn that he took two wives. This is the first introduction of polygamy in the Bible. And the Old Testament never explicitly condemns polygamy, but any time polygamy shows up in the Old Testament, it leads to trouble. This is a perversion of God's plan for marriage of one man, one woman. Instead, it's now one man, two women. And it leads to trouble every single time. So it's not just that Cain City is introducing new technology and new advancement in livestock. It's also new and incredibly harmful advancements in marriage. And to top that off, Lamech is also a man who celebrates violence. Cain was a murderer, but Lamech is someone who is excited about being a murderer. In verses 23 through 24, he sings this song to his wives, celebrating the fact that he just killed someone. He's like, hey, hey, ladies, listen up. I'm a big, strong man. I killed a young man because he hurt me. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of ridiculous. It, it's not just the murder itself. 
he, he feels so excited about it that he sings a song to show off how great he is. And the song actually shows how much like this is a false bravado, right? Like he, he references the fact that he killed a young man, which makes it sound like this guy that he killed actually had no chance of defending himself anyway because he's so much smaller. He found someone who was weak who couldn't really fight back and just chopped him down because this guy hurt him. You slap me across the face, I cut your neck with a sword. That's, that's the attitude that Lamech has. He's looking for violence. He's looking for the slightest provocation so that he can come at you and kill you. And he claims this ultimate vengeance on anyone who tries to hurt him. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I am the ultimate enforcer in the universe. I am the ultimate authority in the world. And many commentators actually believe that Lamech's ability to be so bold in his violence was actually enabled by the cultural advancements in his city. Because remember, this city was where all the technological advancements came from. And Lamech's son, Tubal Cain, was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron which means he probably made stuff that you could use in the fields for farming that would be really useful. But Tubal Cain's name literally means he hammers, he sharpens. And that, that element of sharpening points to the fact that he probably made weapons for violence in addition to tools for doing good work. So Lamech, his family, is the number one arms producer in the known world at this point in time. That's essentially what's happening here, right? Like if you're living in a world where everyone fights with bow and arrows and then your, your son starts making machine guns, no one can stop you. Lamech has access to all the swords, all the weapons, all the whatever he could want. And anyone who tries to stop me, I can just chop them down and they can do nothing about it because I have the better weapons. If your family is the leading manufacturer in the known world of, of weapons, it's very easy to believe that you are the greatest authority in the world. And again, the world hasn't really changed that much, has it? I mean, now it's usually big groups like governments that own the weapon stockpiles rather than individuals. But we've seen over and over again that the nation with the biggest weapons believes that their will is the ultimate one to be enforced on the world. Our, our world has not changed at all from the world of Cain's world. God gives good and incredible technological and cultural advances that can be a great blessing to humanity but at the same time, when these advances are separated from God, they become instruments of incredible harm and violence and destruction. So when we look at Cain's city, the city of man, we see that it's a city of human effort and striving. It's a city of Cain trying to build up for himself what God says he will never have, but Cain working tirelessly to get it. It's an attempt to create a place of stability and safety and home in a world where homelessness is a constant reality and danger is a constant reality. It's a place people go to to make a name for themselves, often apart from God. And by God's grace, it's a place where blessings for the world come out of. But it's also a place where God's good gifts can be used to oppress and attack others rather than to bless them. It's a place of violence rather than kindness. 
And despite all the progress that humanity has made since the days of Cain, despite all the technological advancement we've developed, I think if, you, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that by and large, nothing's really changed about the way the city of man works. I mean, think of Hong Kong. W would you label Hong Kong as a place of human effort and striving? If not, remember a couple weeks ago, Niels showed us the chart that we have by far the longest work hours of any city on earth. Hong Kong is absolutely a place of human effort and striving. Hong Kong is a place where people try to create stability and safety and home in a world where we feel homeless and we constantly feel in danger. Hong Kong is a place people go to to make a name for themselves, often apart from God. And by God's grace, sometimes Hong Kong is able to produce real blessings for the world. But it's also a place where God's good gifts, they're often used to oppress and attack others rather than to bless them. That's what life is like in the city of man. And this passage shows us that despite all the good that can happen in the city of man, human effort, human achievement, human advancement, and technology cannot fix the deepest problems of the world. And actually, if human effort is left unchecked and human technology is left unchecked, it's going to make things worse. This city of man, it can never be a place of true home and true rest and true safety and stability. If we want those things, we need to look for them somewhere else. So where are we meant to find this true home and true rest? We're meant to find it in the city of God. Which brings us to our second point, the city of God. Now, the city of God itself is not physically present in this passage, but we see hints of it. We see foreshadowing pointing towards it. And these hints and these foreshadowings, they're meant to remind us that this world's way of living, this world's way of being, the way that it is in the city of man, it's not the only way we can live or the only way we can be. And the first hint of what things are going to be like in this city of God comes immediately on the heels of Lamech's song, Celebrating His Murder. We see how bad things can get in Cain's family right before we see how amazing and gracious God is. Verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth's name tells us a lot about him, about the hope that his parents had for him. Seth is a gift from God, his mom says. The people of God, the ones who are going to live in the city of God, they don't come about through human effort and striving. They don't come about through us just doing everything we can in our power. Their existence is the result of God's gift. It was true with Seth. Eve said, God gave us another son. It was a gift. But we see this in the New Testament as well. When Jesus says that, that if we really want to know God, if we really want to be his people, we need to be born again. And this being born again is a gift from God through his spirit. It's not something we accomplish by doing great things for God. It's not something we earn through showing up for church enough weeks in a row. It's a gift from God. The, the ability to be the people of God who inhabit the city of God is completely the result of God's gift. 
And the way that Eve celebrates the birth of her son, this gift from God, actually points back in faith, remembering God's promise. In Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve, they've just eaten the fruit. They've rebelled against God. And God comes to hand out the consequences. And he tells the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In, verse, in chapter four, verse 25, when Eve said that God has appointed for me another offspring, that word appointed is actually the same Hebrew word as the word put in 315. So she's, she's looking back at God's promise that he's gonna put enmity between the snake and the woman's descendants. And she's saying, look, he's keeping his promise. He's fulfilling his word that he's gonna, he said he was gonna do. And, and you can also see the, the repetition of offspring there. She's naming her son and celebrating God's work by looking back to God's promise and saying he's keeping every single word of it. She's looking back in faith, seeing that God is doing exactly what he said he was gonna do. Yes, the first godly son, Abel, died before he was able to continue his line. But now, now we have another son. And this son was given to us by God as a gift and God will keep his promise through this one. This great rescue plan, it's back on track. And we see in the next verse that unlike Abel who died before his line could continue, Seth had a son, his line continued. He multiplies, God really is keeping his promises. And it's not just that God's keeping his promises by allowing this family line to continue. We also see that there's a marked difference between this line of Seth versus the line of Cain. Cain's line is known for cultural development, which is a good thing, and violence, which is not a good thing. But what is Seth's line known for? Verse 26 tells us, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's world brings culture and technology to the world, but Seth's family brings worship to the world. The city of man, it's all about striving, doing more and more to make things better and stronger. The city of God, it's about resting, trusting that our God is a God who gives good gifts, trusting that when we come to him and ask him, he hears us. It's a marked difference between the two cities. And isn't it interesting, the first time in the Bible that people are recognized as being God's people and be belonging to God, the thing that sets them apart is prayer, calling on the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me personally, there are many things that I do as a Christian that are far easier for me than praying. Anyone else feel that way? Like showing up for a church service on a Sunday morning, relatively easy. Taking time to read the Bible, relatively easy. Hanging out with Christian friends, easy and fun. Setting aside time to pray, hard. It feels like I'm just intentionally setting aside time to be unproductive, right? And when you set aside time to be unproductive, everything inside you is like, I need to start moving and being active and productive. It is hard. It takes levels of discipline and self-control that other spiritual disciplines just don't require of me. And maybe you're different from me. Maybe you just love praying and you find it to be the most incredible, 
life-giving activity that you've ever done. But my guess is for many of us, it's hard to pray. It's hard to, to feel like we're genuinely connecting with God as a person when we sit down to pray. And yet the Bible speaks of prayer as one of the primary marks of what it means to be God's people. Which means if we wanna truly be the people that God calls us to be, if we wanna be living as citizens of his city, even in the midst of the city of man, prayer needs to be a trait that marks each one of us. A vibrant life of prayer is one of the key markers of the citizens of God's city. And if you, like me, struggle to have that be something that's just a natural go-to for you, how do we get there? That's a great question. I'm still trying to learn that one. I hope we can learn together. But I think a big part of it is this idea of living life together that we were talking about earlier in the service. Spending time together throughout the week where we can actually remind one another, like God is real. He actually hears our prayers. Maybe even, I know this might sound crazy to you, but maybe when we like see each other throughout the week and someone's like, I'm having a tough day, just being like, how about we pray about that right now? And praying together right there, wherever you are, maybe in the middle of Citygate or at the park, just praying together. I think this, this thing of living life together, being a way of spreading culture is, is a big part of why we have this new social gathering WhatsApp group, right? Like learning to pray is part of learning the culture of God's city. And culture doesn't spread through one and a half hours a week just hanging out together. Culture spreads through day-to-day living life together, seeing how people are shaped and changed by this, this reality of God and absorbing that into our lives as we do that. And so my hope is that, again, this, this WhatsApp group that we're introducing to the church can be something that can actually be a tool for helping us learn to pray more deeply by making it more just a normal part of our day-to-day lives where we see one another, we're like, how can I pray for you? And instead of being like, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. And then forgetting about it the moment we walk away, just being like, let me pray for you right now. And building that into the culture of who we are as a family. So we see from these last couple verses of chapter four, God is at work creating a people for himself who can populate his city. These people, they're distinct from those who seek their true home in the city of God. Because unlike the city of man, the city of God is a city of rescue. The city of God is a city where God does for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And yet, as we continue reading, we also see we're not in this city of God yet, which means we still need hope, which brings us to our third point, the need for hope. Because as the passage continues, it brings us to chapter five, which is a big genealogy of Seth's family line. And I realize, I don't know if you were paying attention as we read through this genealogy, the ages in this genealogy are crazy long. Was anyone like, what's going on here when we read that, right? Yeah, what do we do with that? That is a great question. Based on the way that Genesis is written, the author of Genesis expects us to take these ages at face value as factual which obviously does not match our experience of life in this world because people don't live that long in our world today. A couple of thoughts and comments that will by no means give you all the clarity that you want on this. But one, 
the Bible in the coming chapters does present the idea that God significantly shortens the human lifespan because of how widespread human rebellion is against him. Uh, No idea how he does that, but it says that he does. And as you move even in the next few chapters through Genesis, the lifespans get significantly shorter very fast. So that's, that's one thing. The other interesting thing to note is that in many different cultures around the world, if you go way, way back in their genealogies, Actually, many cultures list people way back in this time who lived for really, really long time periods. So that actually may be a way of corroborating (laughs) the idea that people just back in the day lived way longer than they do today. And again, I I don't have all the answers for how or why that works, but I figured it'd be good to just make a note on that because it was something I figured most of us were probably had questions about. But... The big thing that we need to see in this passage, regardless of how long the people lived, is that this genealogy shows us we are not in this perfect city of God yet. And how do we know that? Because there's one line that's repeated over and over and over throughout this genealogy. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died regardless of how long their lives lasted, none of them went on forever. The presence of death in this family line, it's a constant reminder, they're still under that curse. They're still suffering the effects of humanity's disobedience to God. We do see good news in this genealogy that that even after disobeying God, humanity keeps God's image, which we were given at the start, although in a marred form which is really good news. But we also see that we still live in this world of death. Not just then, but all the way down to today, which means we're still waiting for this promise that the curse will be undone. We're still waiting for that promise to reach its ultimate fulfillment. So is there any good news in this passage? Is there any hints that this promise will actually come about one day, that we should keep hoping here in this passage? And the answer is yes. There are actually a couple of them, but the biggest one is this man, Enoch, in the genealogy. Enoch, if you count down the line from Adam in Seth's side of the family, Enoch is number seven. So he, again, a real person, but symbolizes the ultimate example of what Seth's family line is meant to be like. And he is set up as a direct contrast to Lamech on Cain's side. And Enoch breaks that trend of death that we see in this passage. If you look at verses 22 through 24 of chapter five, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. You notice that line that's repeated every other step of the genealogy and he died. It's not here in the story about Enoch. And why not? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us it's because Enoch took, or God took Enoch away from the earth without him having to die because of his faith. Enoch had a close, intimate relationship with God. He walked with God like you and I might go for a walk with a close friend. And because of the intimacy of his relationship with God, he escaped death. Even this genealogy that 
constantly reminds us of the ever-present consequences of sin in the world, it holds out hope for us that there is a way to escape death. It holds out hope for us that God's city is a reality and it's coming. And when we turn to the New Testament, we actually find this teaching continued in the teaching of Jesus. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus, he's talking about a type of life that comes through knowing him that's so powerful that even biological death can't stop it. And not only does he teach about this life, but he gives us hope that this lasting life in him will be truly physical as well. Because on the cross, Jesus faced death on our behalf and he conquered it by rising again. And he gives us the promise that if we trust in him, we will one day be raised just as he was to a new physical life. And when we're raised, where will we live? Well, Revelation chapter 21 tells us that it's gonna be in a city, the perfect city of God. Not a city like we've experienced here on earth where there's endless striving and competition and violence, but a city of perfection, a city of blessing, a city where God himself comes to live with us, a city where God himself will give us a lasting name and a lasting home and lasting stability and lasting safety. If we are the people of God, the citizens of that city, the the spiritual heirs of Seth, that is where our story is headed, to that greater city, the city of God. And if that's the case, how should we live today? Because the reality is, even if our true citizenship is in that city of God, each and every one of us wakes up every morning living in the city of man today. We face the brokenness and depravity and perversion of what happens when this advancement is divorced from God. We see how things made for good get used for such evil and to oppress others. So how do we seek to transform the city today and live as citizens of God's country and God's city here and now. Well, in the Old Testament, here's how God transformed cities. He sent his people in with swords to kill everyone in the city and then the people lived in the city and they worshiped God and then it was a new city. But that's not how God has his people live in the New Testament. Good news, aren't you glad that we don't have to fight anyone? In the new city, in in the New Testament, God calls his people to live as citizens of his city inside the city of man, to live as peacemakers in the midst of violence, to live as truth tellers in the midst of lies, to, to live securely in this place of striving, to be generous in this place of grasping, to be ministers of reconciliation in the midst of a world where everyone is constantly looking for a fight. And you know, when you live this way, the transformation doesn't happen quite as quickly as it did in the Old Testament where they just came in with the swords. When you live this way, you're more like a seed. You know, you you plant a seed, it's buried in the soil. You can't even see it, it's gone. It's not showy or spectacular. The progress it makes is very slow, not fast at all. But what a seed does is it slowly changes its environment from the inside out. It brings life 
to a place where there was no life before. And if you let it just sit there and do its work, everything around it will be different because of that seed being there. That's how God calls you and I to live in the midst of Hong Kong today. Living as citizens of God's kingdom in our world, it's not about going out and raising up an army. It's about laying down our lives for those around us so they can see this better way to live and desire that for themselves. And as we do that, God says he's gonna use us to transform people around us and transform the world around us so it's increasingly filled with his citizens and his culture. So church, we today, we're living in the midst of a battle between two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man has its face set against God. And God does allow it to do things that are genuinely good for the world, but it also has this tendency to use those good things to bring harm and death. But the city of God, it's given to us as a gift from God in fulfillment of his promises to us. And God's inviting you and me today to live as citizens of his city, even as we wake up each morning in the city of man. And we can do that because we know through Jesus that God's promise is secure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace that that allows blessings to come through our world, even through people who want nothing to do with you. But we thank you even more for your grace that rescues us and gives us a new citizenship in your city. We pray that you would make us people of hope, people who understand that our true identity comes from you and what you're doing in the world, not through us and our effort. I pray that you would make us people of prayer, people who turn to you and and cling to you and trust in you and hope in you each day. I pray that you would help us to live as a blessing in the midst of our city today, to be people who show the world around us the way that you change us so that they can want that change in themselves as well. And I pray that you would use us to spread your word, to spread your truth, to spread your hope to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.